Stem Cells at Lunch Digested is brought to you by the Centre for Stem Cells and Regenerative Medicine at King's College London. Hello everyone and welcome to the Stem Cells at Lunch Digested podcast. My name is Alice Vickers, um, a PhD student in the Centre and today we are speaking to Professor Alfonso Martinez Arias who is Professor of Developmental Mechanics in the Department of Genetics at the University of Cambridge. So welcome Professor Martinez Arias to the podcast. We're delighted to have you here today. And to start off, um, could you tell us a bit about what the focus of your research is? The general focus of my research is how the single cell that is a zygote becomes an organism. It's, it's as simple as that. And I've pursued this in, in different ways uh, in, in, in my career, but over the last 10 years, since I got wind of, of the properties and the existence of embryonic stem cells, we've been focusing in using embryonic stem cells as a new model system for developmental biology to study many of the questions that, that, that other systems study in embryos. And the reason for that is that uh, I always put it that there was a bit of a puzzle to me that these cells, you can coax them in a petri plate to develop into any tissue of the organism, but they will not make an organism. And yet, if you put them in an embryo, they will make an organism. So there were only two possibilities. Either there is something mystical about the organism, which these cells are able to read and then participate, or we were missing something. So from the beginning of working with embryonic stem cells, I was very keen on probing these questions. And over the last five or six years, we seem to have found a way into, into coaxing these cells to make structures that they want to make embryos, but they don't look completely like embryos. And it is in those differences that we thrive. Uh, we've also learned that, that, that in order to do this, we have to use engineering approaches, which is meaning an opening of a lot of interesting things to learn and interesting things to play with. But that's the question, how that single cell becomes an organism. And then what would you say are the, the main applications of your work? perhaps beyond the lab? Well, as, 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 a, as a basic scientist, I have enough, I get distracted by, by a lot of interesting questions that, that permeate a lot of biology. But of course, working with embryonic stem cells, it is very obvious that there might be applications. But I want to emphasize that I think that our job uh, as researchers is not to hype people with expectations that we are not going to, to fulfill. Uh, this field of organoids, you know, you could consider a lot of what we do, embryonic organoids. We, we seem to have managed to coax these cells into making structures that will undergo processes and movements very closely associated with gastrulation and develop a body plan. And there we have the seeds for all the different tissues and organs of, of the organism. So that should not be confused with the organoid field, although this would be part of it, which using adult stem cells for the most part, they recreate the, 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 the particular organs. Uh, one of the, uh, of, and, and that field does have a lot of applications, with a few exceptions, we are a little bit far from, 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 that, from that area. I think one of the applications that, that, that are uh, system or our work has probably is on the modeling of early uh, diseases 
diseases that have their origin around gastrulation. As I've just said in the talk, uh, we've never had a handle on human gastrulation because it is hidden in the mother, because there are obvious ethical reasons that do not allow you to actually experiment. Even if you could have access to them, you don't have access. But now the similarities that we are seeing are good enough to perhaps uh, do some disease modeling. And, and, and we, we are working with two or three groups in, in this direction. Mm. Yeah, so as you touched on it, it's really important that we have these um, alternate model systems to actually look at human gastrulation as it is so difficult to study um, in vivo. And um, as you said, there are um, ethical issues with um, studying human gastrulation in vivo. So do you think there need to be ethical regulations to capture the new advances that there have been in studying human gastrulation in vitro? This is indeed an interesting territory and I think we need to frame it, we need to provide the context to understand what it is that we are doing and, and, and how it is it impinges on that. Uh, the critical uh, element to consider is what is called the Day 14 rule and that has a very interesting story. Uh, it was the development of in vitro fertilization that opened up the possibility of culturing embryos indefinitely in vitro. That led to the, to the moral quandary of, of what it is that, that uh, you know, if we do that, are we doing something that is wrong? That led to a committee gathered around the philosopher Mary, Mary Warnock, in which she brought a lot of people from different parts of life. But the scientists play a very important role. And the question was, where does a human being begin. And there were many different points of view, but in the end, the one that won the day was suggested by Anne McLaren, a very famous mouse developmental biology and geneticist. And she suggested that it was the appearance of the primitive streak. And she was not far from the, from the truth, because up to that point, if you separate the embryo into two, you will get two whole embryos. But once the primitive streak appears, uh, there will be an individual that is not divisible. So that, that, was, that was a good thing. Then uh, the problem arose that, that then that, that's what is called the day 14 rule, that you cannot uh, study human embryos in, in the dish until that time. But the thing is not as easy as it seems because the embryo implants at day six, seven, and then, you know, it interacts with the mother in complicated manners that affects the development of the embryo. Still, the possibility was done well. At some point, somebody will get the embryo to the door of gastrulation, and then it will be gastrulation, and then it will be. So the, the rule was there. There is many people now, this is a rule that has been there for 25, 30 years. So there is good reasons to revisit the rule, and I favor that. But I do think that, that even with that rule, uh, at the moment, the technology is not good enough to, 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 to actually give us in good numbers and in good health uh, those particular embryos. Still, maybe lifting the rule, which anyway I think it should be revised, uh, would uh, encourage and would stimulate the development. Okay, so and and that's about embryos. We are dealing with embryos, and and a very important element of a mammalian embryo, it's also these extraembryonic tissues which arise during the early phases of development that will hook it up to the mother and will establish this very important interaction with the mother. Uh, and, and therefore, if you are dealing with an entity that at any point you can return to the womb and that will interact with the mother, you have to be very careful in, in those situations. The uh, structures that we develop, we call them gastroloids because they mimic the process of gastrulation and they develop uh, the body plan. They have two features 
that I think sort of uh, make them what I like to say ethically safe. One, surprisingly, they don't have a brain. And that's important because as important as the primitive streak, it was considered the emergence of the brain, which in classical textbooks is associated with the process of neural induction, which is associated with gastrulation. So not having a brain means that even if we were allowed to develop these things as far as they would, they wouldn't have a brain, they wouldn't be a complete organism. But they also lack extraembryonic tissues, which poses a whole bunch of very interesting questions from the point of view of the biology. And therefore, it could never interact with the mother. So what we have, uh, it, it's basically a model of an embryo. As I like to tell people, it is a bit like a simulator of an airplane. You can do a lot of experiments with these structures without the dangers of incurring into ethical problems or creating a, a bit. You know, it's like you can in, 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 in a simulator of an airplane, you can crash, but it's nothing is going to happen to you. Uh, I, I get sometimes a bit puzzled uh, about people, and probably we should definitely um, look carefully at the, at the ethics of these constructs, but we shouldn't forget that they offer a solution rather than create a problem. And the same I, I mentioned about the micropatents. Right now, our colleagues in the United States are confronting very serious problems to do these kinds of experiments because the federal government has decided that they cannot do experiments that will recreate the three gem layers in the same entity in a dish. And this is, this is very, very, very serious because those entities that, that our colleagues generate or even the gastrolytes, which they couldn't do in the States, they are uh, not entities as, as, as embryos are that they don't have the same moral status. Yeah, yeah, uh, that is um, a potentially huge obstacle to advance this really important field in the US, I agree. Um, and I just want to touch on one of your earlier points. So at the moment, the as it stands, the technology does not go beyond a certain stage of development. Um, and as you said, you know, it, it, it won't form a brain structure do you think with advances in the future, these models could capture later stages of development? I mean, you know, technology, science always advances beyond our expectations, you know. Uh, I think progress, looking at the way we are progressing at the moment, I think progress will be slow because I think that what we are doing here is not making a car or an aeroplane. We are actually playing with the will of the cells. I think something that is very important about the organoids or our gastroloids or the kind of uh, contraptions that, that other people generate from, from extraembryonic and embryonic cells, we don't have any control so far over what the cells do. We are just sort of watching them do things and sort of finding what they want to do, what they want to do. And unless we understand that, we are not going to be able to take them beyond that because obviously they don't want, when we make a gastroloid, they want to make a gastroloid, but they don't want to make a brain in that gastroloid. So I think we know why, so we could try, but, but I don't think that it's going to be so easy. So eventually, uh, some of these things will happen, but uh, I will be one of those people that say something might not happen quickly for in 20 years be proven wrong. I don't mind to be that kind of person at the moment because I think, I think, as I said at the beginning, particularly in this field, our job is not to hype the field, but, but, to, but to have control over what we do. There is too much that we don't understand and we need to understand to give that step. I really want to emphasize here that that's very, very important. Sure, 
with these cells you can do amazing things and once in a million times something will happen in the dish. You might have seen that, we all have seen that. The important thing is, is to control it. And, and for that we have to be critical. Very important of this field is to be critical and have high standards. And do you think that there is more that the field could be doing to raise standards? You know, do there need to be more initiatives? Um, does there need to be more engagement with policymakers? You know, as you said, looking at the US and the, the changes that have taken place there around regulations, you know, is there, is there more that can be done? I think I think there are two there are two things. I think in Europe we have a very different attitude, and I would like to believe that the UK until the thirtieth of December, the thirty first of December, we are part of Europe. Uh, but but I think that uh, that we have in the old world, if you wish, we have a very different attitude and a very different understanding. We should support our our fellow researchers in the states, being very very advocate about those issues. But I think in Europe things are are going well. I think the UK has probably the most advanced and liberal is legislation actually and, and recommendations in this field. They need revision, as I have said. These are, these are discussions that, that were held many years ago when we didn't know so much as we do now. And I think it is important that, that, that we... So what we need to do, um, of course, you know, the last two years, particularly in this country, they've been totally... These issues, which are very important and they are very important for progress, have been totally diluted by Brexit and by the pandemic. But, but you know, I, I think we do need slowly to, to, to redress, the, the, to bring these things to the table. And, and I think in a way the pandemic has made the point that science is important. In fact, I don't think I have ever seen a science so much in the news as over the last six months, and not just the science of, of, of the virus and of epidemiology, but also the scientific method. I think this has been a very good opportunity to, to make people see the, the scientific method, and I think we just now need to, to extrapolate. This is a very important area for basic research and for health, and, and definitely we should, um, we should make sure that it remains on the table. Yes, yeah, I think a happy consequence of the pandemic has been this as you say, wider public engagement in science and research and, and how it's done. So hopefully that will um, continue beyond the pandemic and not get drowned out by other political issues. Um, so just taking a few steps back for a minute. So how did you arrive at your area of research and um, what made you interested in it in the first place? And then how did um, your career lead you here? So I think that uh, from the first time that I heard, and I remember very well uh, what that time was, from the first time I heard that a single cell became an organism, I was just totally, it was a wonderful process that I wanted to understand. And that moment was actually a summer in, in a beach in, in Spain where I was having Life magazine published a very famous article of uh, photographies of a human embryo from the moment of fertilization to birth. And that was absolutely, uh, must have been about 12, 11, 12 years old, and that absolutely captured my imagination of how that happened. I suppose that was also, that, that interest was spurred by a very Catholic environment which said that you shouldn't investigate or you shouldn't ask those questions. So I think it was a mixture of those things that really led me to, to think about this. And, and then I started reading, and, and the second event that, that really impacted me was the experiments of Drish, 
Hans Drisch. He was working with um, sea urchins and he made this fantastic experiment then ever since done in many different uh, organisms where you separate two cells, each of which would have contributed to an embryo, and now you have two embryos. I mean, that, that seemed to me absolutely marvelous. So from that moment, uh, I really was hooked in answering the question of how is it that, that, that these cells be, become, become one. I was also very interested, very, very infatuated with physics, and I thought that you could do biology with physics, but actually it was too early. So I spent actually over 13 years working with Drosophila. I was very lucky to, to start addressing these questions at a time where I got good guidance from, from some mentors, which suggested that, that Drosophila in the early 80s was born to undergo a revolution, and I've never begrudged spending 13 years doing developmental genetics of, of Drosophila, which is what I, what I did until the early 2000s when I heard about uh, stem cells. I, I, I thought that, that genetics was becoming very limited in trying to understand how you build an organism. I think genetics is very good to bring out the, the, the elements. And in the stem cells, I did feel together with a few other people here in, in Britain, uh, James Briscoe, Sally Lowell, a group of people, we decided that, that maybe we could use embryonic stem cells to do developmental biology, and I've never looked back. And, and I think the combination of, of the properties of these cells with the genetics, uh, and now with, uh, with a lot of engineering, as I said, now I'm, I'm abandoning the feeling that, that physics has much to do with life, but certainly engineering does. I mean, the, the, the organism evolution is a great engineer. Natural selection is a fantastic engineer. So that's, in a way, the path that, that has led me to, to where I am. And the most interesting thing of all this is, is to, to continuously look at this perspective that, that has been changing, you know. Very metaphysical when I was younger, then very genetic, and now very much based on the, on the biology of the cells. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's kind of a similar process that captured my interest in the field as well, how we go from one single cell to a full adult. And obviously there are still so many unanswered questions within that. Um, so are there any big questions that you would like to answer in the, in the coming years of your research? Yes, well, uh, exactly the same question I, I had uh, when I was 11 or 12. How does one cell uh, become an organism? I think over the years, I have been getting closer to the answer, but 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 still not there. I think that that that's the nature of biology, particularly the nature of a science. That the nature of biology that we know very little. It's a very young science, and and we are still discovering things. And the twentieth century, I always say, is the century of the gene. I mean, if you think about it, Mendel was rediscovered at the beginning of the century, and the human genome was. Uh, read and, and, and published at the end of the century. Now we seem to live in a post-genomic or genomic area, but the 21st century is the century of the cell. We don't understand the cell, and I think that that's the big challenge. And particularly, we are starting to realize that the cells not only can read genomes, or the genomes make the cells, as I said, but they are able to read geometry, to read forces, to read densities, and to interpret those physical parameters and use the genome to react to them. I think that that's a very, very big challenge. And I feel sometimes a bit old to deal with those questions. I have too many prejudices. I'm very limited in my abilities, but I'm very lucky to work with a lot of people that are younger, that have better ideas than I do, that, that, that are much more brave and, and much more skillful. And I think this is one of the parts that I enjoy most of science. So when you ask me, what am I looking forward into the future, is to learn from them and, and to have fun with them. 
I mean, what I am, if you wish, is I'm, I'm, I remind them of the questions. I think this is something that is very important these days. But I'm really looking forward to what they find out or you find out. <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> well, I think that's a, a really nice positive note to end on. Um, so thank you so much, Professor Alfonso martinez Arias, for, for joining us today. It's been a real pleasure speaking with you. Thank you to you, Anela. And I look forward to continue our discussions in the future. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye.